Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I am here with Pittsburgh Penguins reporter for the Athletic, Josh Yowie. Welcome to Believe in Islanders. Always good to be here, buddy. How are you? I am doing great today. I'm very excited because we're going to take a unique approach to the New York Islanders-Pittsburgh Penguins rivalry, something I know that you're very familiar with. I am, and it's funny, you know, since the early 90s, the Penguins have unquestionably been the better franchise, and yet the Islanders are always the thorn in their side time and time again. It's a very interesting rivalry. It really is. And that's why I'm excited to discuss it, and let's get right into it. As quickly as last year, the Penguins won the Mass Mutual East Division, but then they fell to, you guessed it, the New York Islanders in the first round of the playoffs. What happened in that series? You know, I'm taking nothing away from the Islanders because I think they're a heck of a team and a Stanley Cup contender, clearly. I happen to think the Penguins outplayed them most of that series. Um, Tristan Jari was just embarrassingly bad. I, I mean... Game one, the Penguins had the better of the play. He was awful. Game five in overtime, I don't need to remind any Penguins fans listening what happened on that play. And so so you had the goaltending situation, and then you had the theater that was the Coliseum. You know, I felt pretty strongly entering that series. The Penguins would be fortunate to win one game on the road in that series, and they did. They actually played a great game in game three and one. But you knew by the time it went back to game six when Jari was clearly rattled. I don't think many goaltenders, no matter how mentally tough they were, would have handled that environment all that well. And Jari, to me, was in shambles at that point. I don't think the Penguins played a bad game in game six, really. Um, But their goaltender was shot. He just was. And the Islanders were almost impossible to beat in that building. It was a good series. I thought it was a really interesting series the penguins and islanders just stylistically are so different the penguins probably faster and more skilled the islanders better defensively and tougher more physical um styles make the flight i thought it was a wildly entertaining series but when the disparity between goaltenders is that big and you've got two pretty comparable teams it's just a lot to overcome and i I really think that series was over the second the islanders won game five in overtime Many would agree, and that was because they just had all the momentum and Tristan Jari was really struggling. So now what I want to talk about is some specifics with him. How specifically were the Islanders able to take advantage of Tristan Jari? Well, you know, with Jari, he's a physically talented kid. He was a second-round pick. Um, You know, all the physical attributes are there. They certainly picked on the glove side a good bit. Um, I think that became the book on him to some extent. But more than anything, to me, um, the problem with Jari is just his maturity or lack thereof. Uh, Tristan is just not a very mature kid. Uh, There was a game against the Devils late in the regular season. The Penguins were playing the Devils. Penguins were winning 6-0 at the end of the second period. 6-0. Jari gives up five goals in the third period. The game was in Pittsburgh, by the way. And so that made it 6-5. Then with a minute left, the Devils have their goaltender pulled. Jari gets the puck and tries to score a goal and like shoots the puck off of one of his defensemen and almost gives up the game-tying goal. And I remember thinking then, I don't know if he has the maturity level or the mental wherewithal to really go deep into the playoffs. And, and then when to compile that, when you're playing against a team like the Islanders that is so mature 
you know they're not going to beat themselves. They just have a way about them. Maybe they're not the most physically gifted team, but they're not going to give you an inch. They got a bunch of pros on that team. They're a well-coached team, and that's a bad mix. Uh, maybe Jerry fares better against a more immature team, but not those guys. So I, I really think just mentally that they, they got to him. And while Jari struggled, Islanders rookie goaltender Ilya Sorokin thrived. How did his presence throw off Pittsburgh and give New York an edge? I mean, Sorokin was awesome. I mean, he was – I watched – I don't know what the goaltending situation is on the island moving forward, but that guy looked like a star to me in that series. And, and Varlamov, incidentally, never plays that well against the Penguins. And he – they don't – you know, the Penguins over the years have had their way with a lot of great goalies when you had the offensive talent they've had. Barlamov, for whatever reason, has never bothered them. They, they can score against him. They're not intimidated by him at all. But then you bring in Sorokin, and, man, he, he was just just athletically a freak. Um, I, I give him so much credit, too. That was a lot of pressure he was put under. I don't think many of us really expected him to get the starts at, at the beginning of the series when he did. Um, Barry Trotz went with him. I don't question Barry very often. We know he knows what he's doing. Um, what a gifted goaltender, though. He he never flinched, and um, I I give him credit. For as much as I say Jari was the difference in the series, you can argue Sorokin was also, quite frankly. And two names that Penguins fans probably don't like to hear, Adam Pellick and Ryan Pollock. They've given Sidney Crosby and other top forwards their fair share of issues, and that was especially apparent last year. Why do those two defensemen give the Penguins such trouble? That's a great question. Uh, Crosby was as quiet in that series, really the two series, if you want to include the 2019 series, that's as much as he's ever been shut down in a playoff series. It really is. Um, and not just in terms of production, but in terms of opportunities. He just, you didn't notice him that much in that series. And I actually think he got frustrated to the point that you saw him blow a couple of defensive assignments on big goals for the Islanders too. It's probably the worst playoff series he's ever played. And those two defensemen deserve an enormous amount of credit. Um, you know, I give Barry Trotz some credit, too. If you look at um, Crosby's numbers against the Capitals when Trotz was their coach in playoff series, not really overwhelming, even though the Penguins won two of those three great series against the Capitals. But it wasn't Crosby putting up huge numbers. I, I just think those two defensemen you mentioned are so underrated and underappreciated around the league. And they just match up with Crosby really well for whatever reason. One thing about them, like they're both just like really sturdy guys. Uh, Crosby, you know, the, it's like the new wave of defensemen, these guys who can all skate and are skilled, but they're not necessarily real big. Crosby tears those guys apart because he's just so powerful. He can just work down low, kind of like Yager did in his 30s. Like Crosby's not as explosive as he was 10 years ago, but he's so powerful down low. That's where he creates a lot of his offense now moving forward. And the Islanders, those defensemen are just so sturdy. You can't really push them around. Just physically, they matched up with him. And that, that's, a, that's a tough thing to do. And another thing that he struggled with, Brian Rust and especially Jake Gensel. Like Jake Gensel was thrown around like a rag doll that whole series. And Gensel's a great player, but we saw it the year before against Montreal with Shea Weber just pushed him around. That's how you beat Gensel. And so Crosby has two undersized line mates who are getting beaten up. He didn't have a whole lot of help either. And I think if Mike Sullivan could have a do-over, he would have found someone, maybe Jeff Carter with some more size uh, to put on Crosby's line to help him out a little bit because they, they just were beaten up. And last year did feel like deja vu. The Islanders swept the Penguins three seasons ago. 
How were the Islanders able to surprise the Penguins in that series? Well, in 2019, uh, there was something wrong with that Penguins team, too. There was there was a disconnect. And the 21 Penguins were a much better team. Um, by 2019, I think Phil Kessel and the coaching staff were not seeing eye to eye. That that certainly was creating some issues. Phil was always very entertaining to have around, but you know he he could drive people nuts. And Evgeny Malkin was just having the worst season of his career. He was a turnover machine. Matt Murray. That was the first time when we really saw Murray. Like something wasn't right with him from the Stanley Cup years, and he's frankly never really recovered. So. The Islanders were good. I think a lot of people thought they could beat the Penguins entering that series. I don't think anybody thought it would be a sweep. I think that series was more a look at how the Penguins and that Stanley Cup core, for whatever reason, was starting to unravel a little bit. And they were really vulnerable. And you also saw that was when the Islanders were becoming the Islanders. That That's when they were really starting to find themselves, as we saw in that postseason. So you just had, I think, two franchises kind of moving in different directions. And to the Penguins' credit, like I said, they were much better in 21 for them. Now, they won the the or whatever we call that division last year. They, they won that division, and it was probably the hardest division in hockey. And the Penguins had the second most man games lost to injury that season. That was a pretty incredible achievement, really, what they did. And then for the Islanders to still beat them anyway, I think, tells you something about the Islanders. But as for 19, there, there was a, a sluggish element to the Penguins in that series. And the Islanders won game one in overtime. And I, I just felt like the Penguins never recovered. They didn't look to have the mental wherewithal to deal with playing in that building. And I remember game three of that series, put it this way, this is a playoff game, game three, and the Penguins have recently won two cups. And in the press box, in the third period of game three, which was a Sunday afternoon, there were more people watching Tiger Woods win the Masters and there were people even paying attention to what was going on the ice. We all knew, not that I wasn't watching, but you knew the Islanders were winning that game. They had just taken control, and the Penguins very clearly by that point had no answer. Why was it so important in that series that every time the Penguins scored a goal, the Islanders responded so quickly? How did that shoot the egos down of the Penguins? Well, that speaks of the Islanders' character for one, but you're right. Game one was actually a pretty even game. Justin Schultz tied it with the goaltender pulled. And, you know, you're thinking that, okay, the Penguins just tied the game with less than a minute left. They've got all the momentum going into overtime. If they steal game one on the island, okay. But who knows what might happen here? Those Penguins were really good at home. And the Islanders just come right back, a Chris Letang turnover, and that's that in overtime. And I, I just think you saw from the Penguins' standpoint, they had won the Cup in 16 and 17. They were still really good in 18. They lost to the Capitals in the second round in six games. That might have been the only team they would have lost to that spring. They were still so good. But I think it shows you, and this is taking nothing away from the Islanders, but from the Penguins, the mental toughness that it takes to succeed in the playoffs year after year. They'd won those two cups. I'm not trying to make excuses for the Penguins. I think they were mentally drained. I, I really do. And I think – they just weren't equipped to handle the adversity that they had been a few years earlier. And the Islanders, to their credit, I mean, they were relentless. They just kept coming back every single time. And eventually, it's a cliche, but you could just see in 19, the Islanders were just hungrier than the Penguins. It was very clear to me. And you don't always see that in sports in the playoffs, but it was so obvious that the Penguins had a bunch of guys with Stanley Cup rings and the Islanders, they were just tenacious and the Penguins couldn't keep up. To me, it was different in 21. 
I think the Penguins had gotten a lot of that tenacity back. I just think they were betrayed by their goaltender. But in 19, they, they just didn't have anything left to give. And the Islanders were just ferocious that whole series. They were awesome. So let's play a game and fast forward 10 years. Are you projecting that that will be the series that people look at as the Penguins had two Stanley Cups, but the Islanders got the best of them and ended a potential dynasty? Is that the moment that you're looking at that shut down the Penguins run? I, no, not really, because even if they had beaten the Islanders in 19, I don't think that team was going to roll through the rest of the playoffs. Um, I think probably the year before when Evgeny Kuznetsov scored on a breakaway in overtime in game six to end that series, that that was probably the moment when that window started to shut for the Penguins. But I don't think we knew it was shut mm. until the next season because there were still – that kind of mystery, like, okay, you didn't win three in a row. Well, yeah, who, who the heck does that? No one since the Islanders, right, in the 80s. So I I don't think anybody was writing the Penguins off at that point. But then when, when 19 arrived, it was like, whoa, like this clearly isn't a cup team anymore. We all know this. And I think it also marked kind of the arrival of the Islanders, who we may still look at on paper and say, eh, they're not Colorado or Tampa. But then you watch them play. And you, you just appreciate how good they are and what a real contender they are. And frankly, moving forward into this season, I think they're clearly the favorite in the Metro division. So um, uh, you can call it a passing of the torch in the division, perhaps. I think it was when you know, teams like the Penguins and Capitals are getting older now. And teams like the Rangers and Devils, I don't think are quite ready for primetime just yet. Then you got the Islanders who, you know, year in and year out, they just are who they are. And I think... Yeah, that, that, that was a significant series in 19. That's when we knew this great Penguins team had taken a step back and we knew the Islanders were for real. So if it's not the Islanders series and you think it's the Capitals series, there is one common denominator hmm. between those two teams. That is Barry Trotz uh-huh. as head coach. So how does Barry Trotz play into this Penguin story and just how much of a thorn in the sides of the Penguins has Trotz been? You know, Mike Sullivan has only lost four playoff series as Penguins head coach. And in fact, the last four series he's coached in. And three of them were to Barry Trotz. And the other one in 2020, frankly, I barely count what happened in the bubble because, you know, everything was off with that season. I don't really think Montreal was that great. Uh, But the other three series, Trotz with the Capitals, Trotz with the Islanders, Trotz with the Islanders. Barry knows how to neutralize Crosby and Malkin. He, he has figured out how to slow them down to some extent. And it's not some magic formula. It's just the defense that he preaches on a daily basis coming into fruition. And even in 16 and 17, when the Capitals, I think when the president's trophy, both of those years and the Penguins beat them in two absolutely classic series, they beat the Caps in six games in 2016 and seven in 2017 I mean, those are series that could have gone either way. And I, I think Mike Sullivan and Barry Trotz are both Hall of Fame coaches. Um, but there's no question that Trotz drives the Penguins nuts. And for many years now, you know, I, I think it's been understood that maybe not now, but during the last 10 or 15 years, you didn't want to play run and gun hockey with the Penguins. You didn't want to do it. And the Capitals for years, they always wanted to do that. Right. Sid versus Obi. Well, they were never going to win that that battle. And Barry shows up in Washington, and especially by 2018, if you go back and look at that series, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's something like 
if you look at the odd man rushes in that series, I think the Penguins had seven or eight in the entire series, and the Capitals had like 30. Hey, seriously. So all it was was Barry sitting back, playing a conservative style, knowing full well that especially Malkin and Latang were going to take chances. They were going to get frustrated because they want to score goals. They don't want to win games two to one. That's not in the Penguins' DNA. Barry knew that. He figured it out. He told the Capitals and then the Islanders, you sit back, you be patient against this team. They will give you opportunities. It's exactly what happens. When he plays that safe style of hockey against the Penguins, more times than not, it works. And just as fans get frustrated, I think what you see is the Penguins getting frustrated. Evgeny Malkin was in the penalty box a lot in the last two series. And Sidney Crosby, as you mentioned, his defensive lapses were probably a result of him getting frustrated by the defensive play of Pelik and Pollock. So how do you think the emotions have affected this rivalry over the last few years? Well, sure they have. But you're right. Crosby, you know, Crosby doesn't get mentally impacted like that very often. He's, he's seen a lot in his day. He, this is not his first rodeo. And you could just see he was so frustrated. Like I said, it did affect his defensive work. He has played at a selkie level really the last two or three years. He's not the best player in the game anymore, but he might well still be the best two-way player in the game. His, his defensive work, he probably should have won the selkie if you just base it on the numbers two years ago. He was that good. Um, yeah, you, you could see him get frustrated. He doesn't get frustrated much anymore. Uh, Malkin's different. If you just look at him funny on the wrong day, he'll lose his mind. But he's also a Hall of Fame player um, who was largely shut down. So, yeah, the emotions. Um, it, it's funny. If you talk with the Penguins about different teams, even like off-the-record conversations, like they hate the Flyers because that's just the rivalry. And if you're in Pittsburgh, you have to hate Philly, right? And I get the feeling from a lot of the Penguins that they just don't really like the Capitals much, like on a personal level. I won't name names. You can probably figure out who some unpopular Capitals are. They just hate that team. They don't really hate the Islanders. They actually hold them in very high regard. Like They speak of the Islanders, I think, as much as highly as they speak of any team. They don't really hate them. Uh, they just hate playing against them because they know how difficult life is against the Islanders. The Islanders were pretty much designed to shut the Penguins down. I know that's not really specifically why they were designed. They're designed to win a championship, hopefully for them, but but just stylistically, they give the Penguins fits. If the Islanders were a greedier team that wanted to score more goals and maybe build their team more around Barzell and put more talent around him instead of just being about the teamwork and the full four lines and the defensive work, maybe they wouldn't be as successful against the Penguins with that exact how you beat the Penguins. And we've seen frustrations become a theme in this rivalry. Let's take a throwback to about a decade ago. It's yeah. known as Fight Night. How important was that in establishing some cold blood between these two teams? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, it sure was. Um, I remember, of course, what started it was the week before when Brent Johnson lays out Rick DiPietro. And I, I, as I recall... It was Marc-Andre Fleury laughing on the bench that really set off the Islanders, right? And listen, I know Marc-Andre really well. He's a saint of a man. I will never say a bad word about him. He probably shouldn't have done that. And if they had known DiPietro had a broken cheekbone or whatever it was, I, I doubt he would have responded in that way. But nonetheless, that, that set off the Islanders. And what happened on the island a week later, I've never seen anything like that. And we, I don't think the game's really seen anything quite like that game since. 
Um, I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't entertaining. You're damn right. It was entertaining. Um, a lot of bad blood was created. Um, Dan Bilesma, the coach of the Penguins at the time, he remained furious for years about that. And and the one thing I really, I mean, there were a couple of incidents. I understand the Islanders were hungry for blood and they got it. And that's great. Um, Matt Martin could have killed Max Talbot, like the way he skated up and sucker punched him from behind. That was scary. And the other incident, um, when Eric Tangrady was concussed and laying on the ice and could barely get off the ice, was it Michael Haley or was it, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember which of the, uh, which goon it was <laughs> that was called up. Was it, maybe it was Haley who was just standing there taunting him. I, I didn't really care for that, but man, uh, the Islanders wanted revenge and they got it. And, uh, I think when they played in the playoffs a couple of years later, all the bad blood from that particular event uh, was was still very clear and it, it made for some very compelling hockey. I believe it was Trevor Gillies. Gillies, yes, thank you. It was Trevor Gillies. And I've, Haley went after Johnson, I believe. I believe Haley, he brought Brent Haley John. had a goalie fight in that game, which was that was something you're never going to see again. And no. I think that was just. <laughs> You have probably seven or eight memories from that game that you just go, wow, that well, won't ever happen again. Right, and you remember when, when Haley went after Brent Johnson, Eric Goddard, who was the Penguins goon of the day, left the bench and got suspended 10 games and fined 100 grand, I think, for leaving the bench. But I, I remember a couple of days later, Dan Biles was telling me like he appreciated that Goddard did that. He said, he's, basically, he said we would have thought he was soft if he didn't do that, and I wouldn't be so shocked if Mario Lemieux didn't cover that fine. I, I don't know for a fact that he did, but I've heard some whispers that maybe he did. And I, I can see why. And of course, Mario unleashed this unbelievable uh, statement a day later. when <laughs> Penguins released a statement saying he was going to sell the team because he was so upset, which of course he wasn't really going to do, but um, it was fun. I mean, I, man, I don't know if we need too many games like that because um, a lot of people could have gotten hurt. Thankfully they did not. But I do have to say, so, you know, so many fans out there say, oh, my God, it's a black eye for the game. It's terrible for the game. Like, no, it wasn't. Everybody was watching. Like, the highest-rated game all season for the NHL this year was the Tom Wilson Rangers game, right? Like, people, for better or worse, people do like some violence in their hockey sometimes. It's just the way it is. And that, uh, that Friday night on the island, I will remember that one for a very long time. Going into it, what percentage threshold did you think this could be pretty bad? Did you think it'd be 50% of that, 75% of that, or did you think it'd be that bad? I didn't think it would be that bad. I, when I saw the Islanders line up before the game, I was like, ooh, there's, okay, there's some tough customers. And, and the funny thing about that, uh, Malkin had torn his ACL a week earlier. He was out for the year. And Crosby was out with his concussion that kept him out for a year. So you already don't have Crosby and Malkin in the lineup. And the Penguins had some tough customers at the time as well. And they had Aaron Asham, a former Islander. They had Mike Rupp, uh, Derek Engeland, a really good fighter. And the Penguins, by the way, were furious. If you go back and watch, it may have been the Talbot-Martin incident when Engeland understandably just kind of pulls Martin off of him. They gave Engeland a third man in and threw him out of the game. And he was the Penguins' best fighter by far. So Bilesmo to this day remains furious that his best fighter was, was kicked out that early. But they had a bunch of tough customers in the lineup, even guys like Jordan Stahl and Brooks Orpik who didn't really fight, and they were big, tough guys. Um, so I knew it would get bad. Like I knew there was going to be 
probably a line brawl or two, did not expect it to go to the level that it did, of course. And it got to the point in the third period that my colleague, Rob Rossi, calls me. He's like, hey, can you add up the penalty minutes in this game? I said, no, Rob, I actually can't. I, I can't even count that high. And in fact, the statisticians on the island, they, they were way behind. They were completely overwhelmed. They were talking with the refs in between, like during TV timeouts, like, wait a second, was this a 10 minute for this guy or a five minute? Nobody knew. My favorite story, it's a little more under the radar story with this game, was Joe Vitale playing in his second game. And <laughs> he would look to the side and he saw that he was one of the only players left on the bench. And he's like, this is not a game you want to finish on the bench. And oh. he just got into a scruff just for the sake of getting into one because he did not want to be one of the guys sitting on the bench as the game concluded. I've talked with Joe about that. <coughs> Excuse me, he played college hockey, so he never really had fought before. And he, he did it anyway. And if you look at the Penguins bench at the end of the game, there were only like three players left on the bench, literally. And they were all like established NHL. It was all like Paul Martin, who they were going to fight in his life. And Jordan Stahl and Brooks Orpik, who were you know, established veterans with Stanley Cup rings at that point. Um, but no, they, they had, because they were so decimated with injuries with Crosby and Malkin and other players out, they had a bunch of AHL guys who were trying to – show themselves right and get the coach's attention so they had guys who were willing to fight anyway and not to mention guys who would drop the gloves like rop and asham craig adams whoever and then you look at the islanders lineup and they wanted blood that night so in retrospect it's not shocking that it got that out of hand but i i was probably expecting about 50 percent of what we saw I, I did not think it would go to that extreme 50% is the number that I was somewhat expecting because just seeing that was absolute craziness. And then another moment in this Islanders Penguin series that was pretty crazy was just the lack of goaltending in that 2013 playoff series. The Islanders lost to the Penguins in six games and Evgeny Nabokov struggled. And that series included many crazy things, including a Brooks Orpik overtime goal. And of course, the raucous Nassau Coliseum crowd. How close of a call was that for the Penguins? Very much so. And they were better than the Islanders on paper, way better. The Penguins are the second best record in hockey that year. And everyone kind of expected them to be on this collision course with the Blackhawks. And unfortunately for the Penguins, they lost to Boston in the conference final. But you have to remember, the Penguins entering that series had lost three series in a row. And the year before, they had lost in the first round of Philly and was another series with a bunch of wild brawls. And so even though they were a great team, um, they still had to kind of get over that playoff hump. They hadn't won a playoff series since 2010. And Crosby missed game one of that series. He had a broken jaw from a Brooks Orpik errant slap shot. So he returns in game two. And yet the Islanders, they wouldn't go away. And in game four, they completely broke Marc-Andre Fleury. Fleury was like literally inside of the net when he gave up a goal in the third period of that. I forget who it was that scored the goal, but I was thinking, what is he doing? And, and Tavares was playing really, really well that series. And Thomas Fokun actually saved the day for the Penguins. He had a shutout and pretty nice guy to have as a backup. He was a good goalie. And uh, he won game five in a shutout. And game six, uh, 4-3, I think, was the final. So he finally righted the ship. It was a very uncomfortable series for the Penguins. And as always, they did not find it easy winning in the Coliseum. They actually won twice on the road in that series, both in overtime. Crosby set up Chris Kunitz for a game three game winner. Then Orpik won game six. But 
I, I remember coming away from that series thinking, man, the Islanders are tough. Like I, re- I respect those guys. They just played so hard um, and they were so feisty and the Penguins were the better team and they, they probably deserved to win that series. But I, I don't know that they outplayed the Islanders in that series. I still think just, you know, from a pure hockey standpoint, one team had a chance to win the cup that year and another team didn't, but it was your classic first round series when, Anything can happen, and anything almost did happen. That was a very entertaining series. And I think what you saw in that series was a team that was just much better than the other team. And you also saw that in 1993, but it didn't exactly go in the same way. When Ray Ferraro dropped a pass to David Volek, who then scored the game-winning overtime goal in Game 7, it ended a three-peat try and the season of probably the best team in hockey. So how monumental was that? It's one of the biggest upsets in hockey history, really. Um, and I, I'm i not showing any bias when I say that. You have to understand the Islanders were not even a 500 hockey team that year. And they upset the Caps in the first round. And the Penguins entered the playoffs with a 17-game winning streak. And they actually tied a game. They won 17 in a row, then tied their last game of the regular season. That, to this day, remains a record for the most wins in NHL history. And... Mario Lemieux had come back from his cancer treatments that year, won the scoring title. He put up 160 points in 60 games that season. That was peak Lemieux. When he came back from his cancer treatments in the following 18 games, he put up 27 goals and 25 assists, I think. I mean, he was making a mockery of the NHL. He was absolutely unstoppable. Um, so I'm taking nothing away from the Islanders. Hey, they won four games, but the Penguins, I mean, a lot of things had to happen for the Islanders to win that series. Lemieux hurt his back, which was always an issue in the first round against the Devils. He was not himself against the Islanders. He could barely bend over in that series. His back, if it weren't the playoffs, he would not have been playing. Tom Barrasso, the Penguins goalie who had won the cup two years in a row, frankly had a bad series. And then in game seven, Kevin Stevens breaks his face off of the ice uh, in a collision with um, Oh my gosh, I can't remember the Islanders defenseman now who it was who collided with him, but it was a very violent uh, collision in the first period. Stevens was taken off on a stretcher in the first period of game seven. He was really the heart and soul of that Penguins team. And I, I think that impacted the Penguins a lot. Um, but I listen, I give the Islanders credit. Um, Al Arbor was really his great last moment, I think, as Islanders head coach uh, to to beat the Penguins. And I I can still see Mario Lemieux skating over at Al Arbor and and shake. He always had a lot of respect for him. And literally, as the Islanders were celebrating, Lemieux skated to the Islanders bench and shook Al Arbor's hand. Um, He he held him in very high regard. But that remains the most shocking series in, in Penguins playoff history. And if you talk to any Penguin fan, one series that still bothers them, talk with Mario Lemieux, talk with anyone, They will tell you it's that series because the Penguins were viewed pretty much as being invincible at that time. And obviously they were not. Yeah. And it was just a absolutely remarkable series that Islanders fans hold in very high regard and Penguins fans (laughs) would like to forget. So, Josh, to conclude our conversation, I want to ask you one question. What has been your favorite moment from the Islanders Penguins rivalry? Oh, boy. Um, The Pittsburgh-centric answer would be, you might remember, Sidney Crosby missed a year with the concussion, and he came back in a game against the Islanders and scored a goal on a second shift and had a four-point night. Um, 
that's one of the great moments of Crosby's career. And um, the Islanders were the unfortunate victims in that one. But I'm not going to lie to you. I, I still go back to the brawl on the island. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't much in the way of hockey. But, man, we all remember where we were watching that game that night. And um, it was pretty wild. And it's just – when we look at rivalries, right, we always think, I guess, Islanders and Rangers, right, and Penguins and Flyers, whatever. But all of the old Patrick Division teams have a, a certain kind of rivalry with one another. I think it's so cool. Like, I remember growing up in the 80s watching hockey, and every game was different and every team was different, but they all hated each other. And I love the fact that it's still kind of that way all these years later. So I, I guess I go back to the Coliseum. I just think of the Coliseum when I think of the Penguins and Islanders. It seems like so many wild things happen in that building. It was not, not an architectural uh, beauty, but I will remember that place and I will miss covering games there. The last game I covered there this year, I, I walked a lap around the Coliseum. And I thought, man, I'm going to miss this place a little bit. It, it definitely had a special kind of character about it. Well, we both did the same exact thing when I covered <laughs> game six against the Lightning. I did my lap. I stayed in there for about an, probably an hour or two after the game and yep. just sat in a chair and just savored all my moments there because if you can recount 10 or 15, 20 moments that yep. just the Islanders and Penguins have had there, imagine what an Islanders fan can recount. Yeah, there there I, have been hundreds. I did the same thing at Mellon Arena when the Penguins uh, lost to the Canadians in 2010. It was the last game there. PPG Paints Arena is a beautiful place. I, I've heard the Islanders' new digs is great. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. But I'm telling you, all the new places, they don't have the character of those old barns. They really don't. So the Coliseum, I would usually complain about it when I was there because, like, the internet never worked and stuff like that. <laughs> Man, I'm going to miss that place. It was the best atmosphere in hockey the last decade. No one else was even close. Well, that is a great note to end on. Josh Yoey, thank you so much for joining us here on Believe in Islanders. It was very exciting to talk about a rivalry that many people know of, but many people don't realize just how many iconic moments there have been. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, buddy. Anytime. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your night. That was Believe in Islanders with Josh Yoey. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.